Well, we need to settle down and get our Bibles open. You scholars of your own Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Anybody that doesn't have a Bible, you probably just left it in your car. So put your hand up nice and high, and we'll deliver it. John, did you leave your Bible in the car? Is that where it is? <laughs> I have a, a, just a further announcement uh, I want to I make. Uh, uh, John DeVente has been coming to our church for a very long time. He's a professor over at uh, Ringling School of, um, of Art over there, and he uh, has a brother by the name of Matt. I hope you saw this in your bulletin, and Matt will be here on Wednesday uh, for a time of worship and ministry. It'd be a good time to bring a friend to just enjoy a great evening. I'm particularly looking forward to it. It's a busy week this week. Uh, so I get to come on Wednesday and just be ministered to. And then I get to be ministered to on Thursday and Friday and part of Saturday before the weekend services. So it's going to be a really busy week. Uh, something else that John reminded me of that I want to share with you for your prayers mostly, but not only. Uh, the two schools, New College and the uh, Ringling School of art. Uh, both of them are, are sponsoring what they call a Jesus Week this week. They do this every year. I think it's an amazing thing uh, that uh, there can be a week where the Christians in the schools can uh, hi highlight their belief in Jesus. In years past, I've gone there a number of times and done debates with the students over there. It's an exciting time, and it's a time uh, where we need to really be praying for a lot of students that will, in some cases, maybe hear the gospel explained for the first time. And so that's something you can pray about. But on Friday night at the Ringling School of Art, uh, they're having, a, it's, it's like an art show. And uh, Matt uh, Daventi will be there doing music, and uh, that's something you would really enjoy going to. And so if you have the time on Friday night, uh, that way you can participate and see what some of these uh, wonderful students and others do over there. Now, I want to talk to you about uh, Friday, Good Friday, the 6th of uh, April. Uh, that's when we're going to have our secret church. I spent quite a bit of time on it last week, and I want to do that again this week. There's some of you don't know what Secret Church is. Just, uh, just for help, since I only announced this last week, just put up your hand if you just think, like, I don't know what Secret Church is. Anybody here wasn't here last week? I can't believe you guys weren't here. <laughs> Where were you? <laughs> Somebody's blaming it on his wife. Uh, but uh, uh, let me just uh, do a, a quick uh, overview and then a short video. Uh, from last week. Uh, Secret Church uh, is uh, something that was started by a man named David Platt, Pastor David Platt, young, exciting, young Bible teacher uh, in uh, a church of Brook Hills in, in uh, Alabama. Is that right, Alabama? Where? Birmingham. Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, it's a mega church with thousands of people, and uh, uh, David Platt, in my estimation, is one of the best Bible teachers anywhere today. He spends a lot of time around the world in the persecuted church teaching. He's a tremendous teacher of the Bible, and, and uh, he was at a, a secret church where he had to be surreptitiously taken to the church and he had in this home, 
and uh, he taught as he was to do. The people had risked their lives literally and coming to this church. And he finished his teaching, and and they asked him if he could teach some more. And so he said, sure, he could do that. What would they like him to teach? And they said, well, we'd like you to teach us the Old Testament. And he kind of laughed and said, that'd take a long time. And they said, we're not going anywhere. And so uh, he spent hours teaching them through the Old Testament. Then he came back home to his home church in Birmingham, and he told the people about what had happened. And uh, he suggested that they should have a secret church meeting. And so in their mega church with an auditorium that holds thousands, they had a Friday night teaching starting at 6 o'clock where he said he would teach from 6 o'clock into midnight. And they had a very good turnout. They didn't pack the place out, but there were a lot of people there. It's a huge church. And it was so impacting that months later when they did it a second time, they had to turn away people. So many people came for the six-hour teaching time that they couldn't get them all in. And so now when they have secret church, you have to literally buy a ticket and reserve a specific place in the church because there are way more people want to come. So they started simulcasting it. And uh, last uh, year, for instance, the simulcast was 44,000 people. The, in other churches uh, that came to their church to listen to the teaching. It goes for six hours where you will hear uh, incredible teaching, in this case on the subject of suffering and the cross of Christ. It's Good Friday. And you'll hear testimony, you'll worship, you'll pray. And I can promise you this, that if you come, you will be changed. And it's worth any effort or sacrifice, which is really no sacrifice. I mean, we call it secret church, but really, and nobody's going to come breaking in. Nobody's going to disturb the meeting. I've been a pastor for more than three decades now, and uh, I've been very excited about a lot of things that I've seen God do in the church over the years. But I've never been more excited about anything more than I have about the secret church. I personally can hardly wait. It'll start 7 o'clock on the 6th. And uh, it's 7 p.m., so you, you need, if you're coming, you need to be here in time. We'll have some material for the first uh, 100 people that come. Uh, I don't really care how few or many come. I just know that whoever comes, we're going to learn a lot about the persecuted church, a lot about the scriptures, and you're going to be glad you were here. So uh, what I have uh, done is I put together just a four-minute video, exactly four minutes, uh, of a secret church starting in 2010, just to get a little idea of what David is like and what secret church is about. So watch this for four minutes. Well, good evening. I want to remind you from the very beginning why we call this secret church. And the reality is because we, we have many brothers and sisters who are forced to gather in secret at the risk of their lives to study this word. Secret Church was kind of birthed out of some, some times that I've had with underground house churches and those sort of locations. The, the qualification to get into those meetings was not that you were able to get online qualification to get into those meetings was that you were willing to lose your life to know this word. And I just want to remind us from the very beginning that this is, this is not a game for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Just this last week, these stories came out. Uzbekistan. 20 police officers raided a private home during a meeting of a house church. 
Church members were beaten and threatened. Bibles were torn from the hands of their children. And leaders of the house church were summoned and detained. Azerbaijan, police in the northern town of Kusar, raided the home of a Baptist house church. Four leaders were arrested and are awaiting trial tonight while we meet in this room. Assam, India, two church buildings and over 400 homes of Christians were raised and burnt to the ground. Over a thousand families, including children, babies, pregnant women, and severely ill brothers and sisters are now homeless, the article said, spending cold nights under the open sky. And then many of you heard about Baghdad and what is being called the most lethal attack on Christians there in the last seven years. Militants stormed a church building with approximately 100 people inside. They began firing at various worshipers. One leader was pushed to the ground as he pleaded for the gunmen to spare others. Within seconds, his body was riddled with bullets. The assailants held others hostage for approximately four hours until an ensuing gun battle with authorities ending up, ended up leading to the death of 46 Christians. Aid workers who rushed in found blood smeared on the walls and scraps of flesh strewn across the floor. The militant group behind the attack publicly stated, all Christian centers, leaders, and followers are legitimate targets for us wherever we can reach them. Hamid, who you'll hear from later tonight, uh, walked into this room and his comment was, this is like heaven. He's from Central Asia and he said, this is like heaven to have this big a room for this many people to gather and to, to sing praises together to God. And he, he said in his words, to gather together with this many believers, sing praises to God without terrorists waiting outside to storm in and slit your throat. So this, this is why we gather tonight. We gather to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. We gather to remind ourselves of the artificial, superficial battles that we surround our lives with. The, these are real battles. So I want us to realize this, this weekend what the real battles are. I was talking to um, somebody at our prayer meeting early this morning and I was saying that, uh, you know, I've uh, had the experience along with others in our church of uh, visiting the persecuted church uh, even before 9-11, that many years ago for years going to the Sudan year after year and again uh, going this year. Now, I remember when I first went, I had read about the persecuted church and I, I, I sort of went with a bit of bravado, you know, like I'm going to the persecuted church, look at me. And I uh, went into the Sudan, the war was still on and I'm teaching a class and uh, there's about 50 young men in front of me and uh, they're taking notes constantly as I'm teaching and then all of a sudden they ran away from me. I mean, literally, they'd knocked over everything they were sitting on, and they just ran away. And I'm thinking, this has never happened back in Sarasota. I mean, what did I say? 
But after they just sort of got out of sight a little bit, I heard the planes coming. They have younger ears than me. They heard them long before me and just assumed that I wasn't so dumb as to stand there when the planes are coming to bomb and that I'd get out of the way. And so I can assure you that I sat a very fast time and caught up with them and, uh, and hid. And uh, it just changed me completely. I realized the uh, danger. Uh, when we were talking this morning, I said that I've never used in sermon illustrations some of the stories that these men have told me about what it's been like to be a Christian in their world. Mainly because I don't want these stories in your minds. Some of them are so horrific that if I told you, you'd have trouble even contemplating such terrible things. Yet, they're among the most joyous group of believers in Jesus that I'd ever met. And if you come to the secret church, starting at 7 till, yes, 1 o'clock in the morning, you'll come away profoundly changed. And hopefully, like I have over the years, and even more recently, as I've learned more and more about what's going on around the world in this area, uh, it'll change your life here. You won't consider some of the trivial stuff anymore, some of the things we complain about, some of the aches and pains that we have. Uh, some of the people that I've met in the persecuted church would like to have whatever my worst day has been on earth every day rather than every day that they have if they could choose. And yet on some days I've been guilty of complaining about some pretty trivial things. So it could be very life-changing. I'm extremely excited about it. Uh, let's pray. Father, I just pray for the secret church and, and for many of us to be able to change our schedules. Father, for us, you already know that it seems like six hours. Come on. Uh, we don't do anything for six hours. And so I just pray that you will help us, Father, to just uh, take a step of faith and make arrangements in our lives where we can to come and gather together and pray and worship and learn uh, from one of your best uh, servant teachers and then be impacted uh, and understand the scriptures better when it comes to suffering than maybe we ever had. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, look with me to Hebrews chapter 13, last time together in Hebrews. I want you to look at two verses, verse 20 and 21. That's mostly what we're going to study, just those two. We'll finish it off, but those are the two we're going to look at. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. Uh, verse 20, Hebrews 13. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now, here's, let me just say this to you so that we can understand this. It, in my translation, it says, brought back from the dead. Yours should say something similar. What it should say is, led up, L-E-D, led up from the dead. If you're capable of checking out the Greek language, you'll see that. And it's important, uh, you'll see in a moment, why we see it that way. So, so let's start again. Now, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant led up from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. May that God equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is a blessing that is said commonly at the end of church meetings. And in the liturgical churches... Uh, this is almost always uh, quoted 
during the Easter season because of the reference in Hebrews to the resurrection. This is the only place in the book of Hebrews that specifically references the re- resurrection. It's assumed all through the book, but this is the only place that specifically references it. We're only weeks away from our Easter celebration, at which time, of course, we'll be very specific about the resurrection. The Hebrew sermon, and the book of Hebrews is a sermon, uh, has preached about the death of Jesus, and we have learned how important his death is to us. But without the resurrection, his death is meaningless. Now, the little word led up is significant. Jesus came down from heaven to earth. He was sent by his Father. If you study the book of John, there are all kinds of ways to go through the book of John. And one of the studies you can do is you can look up every time it says sent, S-E-N-T. And Jesus is sent by God. He is the sent one. And as you go through the book, uh, you see that finally he sends us. So we become sent ones also. And so Jesus came down from heaven to earth. He was sent by his Father. But now he has been led up by his father who sent him down. Now this shows the clear purposefulness of everything done by the Godhead. The Trinity was totally involved in our salvation. The father sent the son who came down to the earth and was led back up to heaven. And then the Holy Spirit was sent down by the father through Jesus, so we can be redeemed, and we also eventually will be sent up to heaven for all of eternity. So here we see that God led up Jesus from the dead, and then look at your verse again. Look at the verse again, the first verse there. He led up Jesus from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant. The idea is to point out from all the previous teachings, that Jesus' death sealed the deal on the new covenant. God's action in the resurrection was a signature saying that what Jesus accomplished, the Father has accepted. We are no longer under any other covenant. In the Bible, a covenant is a promise made by God that it'll never break. And we're no longer under any other covenant. We're now new Covenant, New Promise Christians. That would be a good name for a church. New Covenant Christian Church or New Promise Christian Church. We don't have to sacrifice animals. We don't have to eat certain foods to be accepted by God. We don't have to maintain uh, certain religious ceremonies. We have been accepted by our Father because of Jesus' death. We're now under grace. That means unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We have received mercy instead of justice. And the proof of it all is that God, my Father, led by His Son, my Savior, led His Son, my Savior, out of the grave and back into life eternal. And I think it's important to understand that eternal life is not just that we're going to live forever. That might even sound somewhat boring. What am I going to do forever? (laughs) But eternal life is a new life. And now... Uh, we have a, a different appreciation of life. And in eternity, our present satisfaction and salvation become a permanent contentment and even excitement about the tasks ahead of us. It really saddens me. It's usually a young person uh, when someone says they are bored uh, with life. 
But I understand that. If life is just what this world has to offer, then it's not much. The more we obtain, uh, the less we are satisfied. If you have ever been a party person, and I'm sure nobody here has, but if you've ever been a party person, you know that after each party, there's a tremendous letdown. At first, you think, well, the next party, another drink, a different crowd, more excitement, that this will satisfy. But eventually, boredom sets in with no solution in sight. I can testify that after over three decades of being a Christian, there's a lot of things I've been, but I've never been bored. God is not boring, and eternal life is the most exciting adventure one can ever embark on. We call it heaven, eternity. And frankly, it's unimaginable. Whatever you think it is, it's better than that. The Apostle Paul wrote about heaven, quoting from the book of Isaiah in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In writing about heaven, he wrote, However, as it is written... No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Isaiah 64 reads, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And in the last chapter, of Isaiah chapter 65, talking about the far future, it says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The Christian life is like a race, but it's a, it's a race that is fixed. The end is certain and will be better than expected. Beyond our wildest dreams, greater than the greatest imagination anybody has ever had. I taught some parables in our home fellowship uh, this Friday, a whole list of parables, one right after the other. And uh, uh, there's two of them uh, that really impacted me during the week. Uh, we find them in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd of people. And he starts off by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now I always say when I teach parables, that when you see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, what it really means is, this is what it's like to be a Christian. The kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. And so uh, Jesus is saying to the people, this is what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, just a little bit of cultural understanding here. They didn't have any uh, Brinks trucks or banks or safety deposit boxes in those days. And so when they had valuables that they wanted to keep secure, it was common to hide those valuables by putting them in some kind of a case and burying them someplace on the property where they could easily find them if they wanted to dig them up again. And so this person uh, was digging, and he found this treasure, and he uh, sold everything he had, and he bought the field so he could have the treasure. And then again, Jesus says, again the kingdom of heaven is like, being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is like, like a merchant looking for fine pearls. So here's an expert on pearls. Pearls. 
when he found one of great value, meaning more valuable than any one he had ever seen before, he went away and he sold everything he had and bought it. Earlier in the week, after studying these two parables, I wrote this on my Facebook, which was well read. When you become a believer in Jesus, you have found something worth losing everything for. Uh, the pearl reminds me, it's a, it's a pearl of great price. Jesus is often called that. It's a metaphor. And when you become a Christian, what you receive is greater than anything you could lose. So, let's use our last time together in Hebrews to investigate from these two verses what God is like, the God of peace, the God of eternity, the Father of our risen Savior, Jesus, our great shepherd, uh, God, our equipper, and our enabler. So we'll start with the God of peace, the God of peace. I saw uh, this morning uh, very early on my internet feed uh, a news item about Syria. They're having peace talks in Syria. Uh, peace talks in the Middle East. Peace talks in Israel. Peace talks in Afghanistan. Peace in Iraq. Peace from terrorism. Peace. The impossible dream. It isn't going to happen. Jesus even said that there'd be wars and rumors of wars right up until he returned. Matthew 24. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So even though the United Nations is supposed to be a peace unifying force in our world, and even though almost everyone you meet in America at least wants peace, there will be no peace. But our God is called the God of peace. And we can have peace with God. The Bible teaches that we're all enemies of God because of our sin nature. No sinful human being could ever be in the presence of a holy God unless we have made peace with God. The best passage of Scripture that I can think of for that is in Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 25. It reads, Jesus was delivered over to death, that's the cross, for our sins, and was raised to life, that's the resurrection, for our justification. And most of you know that the word justification, just to simplify it, means that we are then made just as if we had never sinned in God's eyes. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Grace meaning you don't deserve it. Now the Greek word for peace has the same meaning as the Hebrew word shalom. It means we're no longer enemies of God. It implies a prosperous life with a restful attitude. That's the picture of shalom. A prosperous life with a restful attitude. It is a word that causes us to look forward to the future because God is on our side. The God of peace. If I were asked to choose one verse out of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that I uh, particularly liked, it would have to be Jeremiah 29.11. Most people actually know it, most Christians. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And the word uh, prosper there is the word shalom. It means peace. It has the connotation, the idea of safety in it. We're safe in the arms of God. Now, when Jeremiah spoke these words from God, the people were in captivity in Babylon with seemingly no hope at all. God was communicating to his people through Jeremiah that they, in fact, had a great future. And he kept his promise by returning them to the land. We have exactly the same promise today. We are residing in a foreign land. We call it earth. And we're heading to a very prosperous place. We call it heaven. We have citizenship in heaven. And this promise should produce in us a true shalom. A true peace and a positive expectation of what is to come. Because our God is the God of peace, we have nothing to fear of him and because of peace, we have nothing to worry about. Nothing. Jesus said that he has given us peace. I've used the verse often in funerals, but it's a verse as a present promise for all of us right now. John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says to his disciples, that's us. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now that should just always calm us down. I love the verse. But we have to appropriate that. We have to live that way. We can live that way. It's actually the same thing that Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 uh, where he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. He wrote. Now, I've actually heard someone teach one time, more than once actually, that what this means is that no matter what happens to us in our lives, that we should thank God for it. In other words, you get a devastating disease. Thank you, God, I've got this disease. We lose everything in business. Thank you, God, I lost everything in business. That's not true. That's not the idea. Uh, we, uh, the, the men's uh, uh, breakfast uh, ye yesterday in the morning and when we were eating breakfast together uh, we had some announcements and stuff and somebody stood up and said we need to pray for Jason Smith who uh, last night he was sitting right there you know, with his wife uh, Nerissa and uh, their children were in the um, uh, children's ministry and so we prayed for Jason Jason's a young large good-looking very fit young man uh, but he has cancer, and he told us when he would be starting his chemo treatment so that we could pray for him. Now, I've known about the cancer from the first diagnosis, uh, so have many others that know him in the church. He's been an inspiration to us. He's not saying, God, thank you for this cancer, but what he is doing is he is rejoicing in the Lord even though he has cancer. That's the idea. That's the way we're to be. And he's an inspiration to many. And there are many others. In the last service, there were two others uh, in our congregation that uh, had cancer. They weren't thanking God for the cancer, but they were rejoicing in the Lord in what they had. That's the idea here. We can do this. It says so. We're to do this. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord 
always, even when you've just lost everything, even, uh, even when you've got a devastating uh, diagnosis, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to make it clear that you didn't mishear him, I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. In other words, make sure your life is different and people will see that. Jason is a fireman. The other people he works with can see that even though this has happened to him, he's still rejoicing in the Lord and trusting God. It says the Lord is near. He is near us. He may be coming soon, but he's near us. And then it says, do not be anxious. The word anxious is just the same word for worry. Don't worry about anything. Instead, in every situation that you're in, talk to God. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Notice the word thanksgiving, not whining. <laughs> and the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, no psychologist can explain it, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, the peace, the God of peace. Now look back at the two verses again. They'll start to mean a little bit more each time. Verse 20, Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant led up from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The eternal covenant, it says, through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, we've already talked about this all the way through our exposition of the book of Hebrews, but a further word of encouragement is in order. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, the preacher writes, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, if you were here, you'll remember that in Hebrews 8, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31 and the preacher is applying it to Christians. And uh, that we now have a relationship with God that is a powerful relationship. And what is important for us to see is the supernatural nature of the promise. And the best way to see that is by seeing a biblical description of what a Christian really is. And the best one-liner for that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, that means we've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then that person is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Something supernatural has happened. When uh, someone receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, by repenting of their sins, that person is changed. Able to not sin. Able to resist sin that they couldn't resist before. And able to live for Christ rather than myself. Now here's what's important about this. The new has not only replaced the old, but we already have said it, the new will never be replaced. You are forever. You are forever. Oh, I know everybody's forever, and there's a couple of places where you can go, but when we say, I am forever, I'm looking forward to that place that I'm going. And the resurrection is the proof this is true. It's because of the blood of Jesus that our sins are forgiven, and it's because of the resurrection of Jesus that our forgiveness lasts forever. And then it says that Jesus is our great 
shepherd, our great shepherd. Now, if there is a shepherd, there must be some sheep. Do you know that we're all called sheep in the Bible? Quite a few times. I saw many sheep traveling in Scotland and England, but lots of them everywhere you looked. But I only know about sheep from reading. I read that sheep are really dumb. And I'm reminded that God calls me a sheep. <laughs> the Old Testament has a lot to say about sheep. In the Isaiah 52 and 53, a great picture of our Lord Jesus hundreds of years before he arrived on earth, one verse says, we all, take this personally, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, the self-will of us all, the self-pity of us all, the whining of us all. It's all but laid on Jesus. Now, according to what I have read, if one sheep goes over a cliff, then the others around it will follow over the same cliff. <laughs> the dumbness of sheep is well documented. Uh, I read a, a talk by a philosopher named Dr. Bob Smith this week. He's a college professor in Minnesota. And he said that uh, sheep proved beyond a doubt that evolu evolution could not be true. <laughs> Here's his thinking. He says, I'm quoting him, sheep are so unintelligent and obtuse. Now, obtuse is a fancy word for very dumb. So, sheep are so unintelligent and dumb and defenseless, they could not have possibly evolved. The only way they could have survived is with shepherds. <laughs> in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the resurrection. And uh, these statements are put there purposely as affirmations of deity. They remind us when you read them of Exodus chapter 3, where uh, Moses goes up to the uh, burning bush, the bush that burns but doesn't burn up, and he's talking to God, yeah, he's talking to a bush, talking away. And God says, you're going to go and you're going to free the people from the Egyptians and you're going to tell Pharaoh and all of this stuff. And so finally he says uh, to, to the bush, to God, he says, well, who shall I say sent me? And uh, the voice comes back, tell them I am who I am sent you. An awesome statement. It means God will be to us whatever he needs to be to us. And so Jesus took that idea, those statements, to make an affirmation of his deity. And one of the things he said, John chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. That's relationship. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. In other words, we can have the same relationship with our shepherd Jesus as he has with his Father, our, our Father. And then he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Wow. And now Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great shepherd, risen from the dead, our Lord and Savior and protector, shepherd. So we have peace with God. Uh, we have no reason to ever worry about anything, none. Therefore, we have the peace of God, which is a supernatural reality in our lives, if we'll let it be. Plus, we have an unbreakable, eternal agreement with God and our great shepherd who died in our place 
and is presently residing in heaven, praying for us and directing our lives. <laughs> we simply have it made. Now let's look back at the verses again, and they'll become even more meaningful. Verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant led up from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, that God, let him equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So now we see that God equips and enables us to do his will. I love this word, equip. It's the Greek word you would use if you were mending a net that was broken. It means to be made perfect, to repair. It's used, uh, uh, it can also be used to set a bone. To, in classical Greek, it's the word they use if the doctor, you broke your arm and he set the bone to set a bone that's been broken. So God equips us. He restores us. He mends us. He sets us back in place. He prepares us for a work that will display His greatness. This is one of the most exciting concepts of the Christian life that one could ever imagine. William Barclay, talking about this passage, says that God is the God who both shows us His will and equips us to do it. He never gives us a task without also giving us the power to accomplish it. When God sends us out, he sends us equipped with everything we need. If you want to be a doctor, you would go to medical school after much preparation to be equipped to follow that profession. It's the same for a machinist or a lawyer or a computer operator or any other direction in life you may choose. The point is we can't just do whatever we initially desire to do without being equipped. Uh, no matter the assignment, no matter the danger. Remember, the uh, book we've been studying, Hebrews, is a sermon to a small group of Christians who are experiencing increasing persecution. Life is becoming dangerous. So no matter the assignment, no matter the danger, God always equips us for His purposes. Always. But we must, of course, be part of the church the body of Christ, before we will ever discover what it is God has prepared for us. God is in the business of taking the most broken and damaged people in the world and mending them, restoring us for God's greater purposes, and that should fill us with hope. This past Friday night, we had one of the largest turnouts we've ever had in our home fellowship. The majority of the people there have been coming to our fellowship in one way or another, in some cases for many years. And, uh, and when it was over, I just took some time to think about it, especially the next morning I'd written a sermon, but I was thinking about it, and I was thinking how great it is that, how much I know about all these people. How much I know about their kids sometimes and their uh, families and how much I get to pray for them and, and care about others who I haven't even seen and how much they know about me and Valerie and our family and how much they're praying for us and the encouragement it is to pray with one another and to be encouraged by one another uh, to do uh, the will of God. 
that's the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live together with others because we need one another. Now, I want you to see the next important sentence here. Just look back at the next verse, verse 21 here. And, it's, and uh, it says uh, that he will equip you with everything good for doing his will. And here's the important part. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. Now, this is what I would call God's good enabling. It's not good to enable someone to maintain their laziness or to give in to their bad habits. That's not good. But God enables us to do what is pleasing to Him. And everything we do is done through Jesus. It's actually another one of those I am sayings. Jesus in John 15, 5 said, I am, an affirmation of deity, I am the vine. You, dumb sheep, are the branches. <laughs> if you remain in me and I in you, uh, you will bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. We can do nothing apart from Jesus. We need Him to be able to live our lives. But never forget that in Christ there is nothing He wills that we cannot do. God has a plan, and it's a glorious plan. A glorious plan. We can read about it in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for uh, we are God's handiwork. Uh, the Greek word for handiwork is the word you would use to describe a poem. Uh, some of your Bibles actually say we are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. When we're saved, he, we don't get saved by doing works. But when we're saved, God has a plan. And he prepared in advance for us to do this plan. And so he has given us everything we need to do his will. Our number one prayer in life should be, God, show me your will, and that is what I will do. That should be our number one prayer. And of all the prayers that Jesus prayed in the Bible, the best one to imitate would obviously be, not my will, but thy will be done. Good question is, do you want to do God's will? I mean, that's a good question. Well, someone will say, well, how can I know his will? Well, the, the answer is actually really easy. I went through, in my early years as a Christian, sort of a, I, I call it my God's will stage of life. And I knew, uh, I was at the Christian bookstore every week, and if there was any title that had will in it, I bought it. And I read and read and read and read and read to try to figure out God's will. But God's will is really easy. It's first off to obey the Scriptures. Now, you can't obey the Scriptures if you haven't read them. So you need to read them so that you know what to obey. And then you must become part of the Christian community. If you isolate, you'll get worse and worse, not better and better. So don't just come to church services. Don't just do that but become part of a home fellowship. Uh, be at the men's ministry when you have the opportunity, the women's ministry, and all the other things that go on. Be available to be known and to know others in the local expression of the universal church. And then it won't be long until you start to see how God is working out His plan for your life, enabling you and enabling you uh, to do what you uh, could otherwise never have done. You see, in our home fellowship, the others around can tell me more about what God's will is for me than I even realize. 
but I can do the same for them because we've come to know one another. Alexander McLaren died in 1910. I have all of his sermons and 12 volumes of books and uh, I love to read them and here's one that he preached on this passage just a, just a few sentences uh, well over a hundred years ago. He wrote, so brothers and sisters of course, open your mouth wide and it will be filled. Expect great things. Believe that what Jesus Christ came into the world and died to do, what Jesus Christ left the world and lives to carry on, will be done in you and that you too will be made complete in him. For the shepherd leads, and the sheep follow. Last night when I was preaching, I remembered a little story I heard a long time ago about a tour group that went to Israel from America, and uh, while they were touring, the tour guide, who was uh, an expert, of course, in everything in Israel, uh, they, there was a field, and there was a bunch of sheep in the field, and in front of it there was a uh, a shepherd walking in front calling to the sheep. So the tour guide thought this would be a good lesson because he said, your scriptures teach that Jesus is a shepherd and he leads the sheep and I just want you to see it in action. In the Middle East, he said that shepherds always walk in front of the sheep and call the sheep and they respond to his name and, and, uh, and that's the way that shepherding is done here. But he said, if you go to some place like Scotland or England, uh, the shepherds there, they drive the sheep from behind. But the shepherds here lead the sheep and uh, it says in, uh, in the New Testament that Jesus is our great shepherd. Well, that was a nice little lesson to learn. And next day they were on the tour again, only they came by a different field. And this time there's a huge group of sheep out in the field. And there's this guy behind them just screaming at them, just driving them on. And so they <laughs> grab the tour guide and they say, I thought you said that in the Middle East that shepherds lead their sheep. So look at what's happening here. And the guy looks out and he says, well, that's not a shepherd, that's the butcher. <laughs> Jesus is our shepherd and he always leads us for our good, never for our bad. Now, let's finish off these last verses and we'll just finish. Verse 22. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. You see, this is a sermon we're reading. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. Well, it may not seem so. We've been studying this for seven months. Nevertheless, you can sit down and read the book of Hebrews through in just an hour, even if you're a slow reader. And after seven months of teaching, if you've been here for uh, any significant amount of this teaching, you should have pages of notes, or at least a very marked up Bible. And many decisions should have been made during the study that have already changed your life. Plus, now, when you read Hebrews, it should be a very meaningful verse. Or, I'm sorry, a very meaningful uh, uh, passage of Scripture, a very meaningful book in the Bible. Now, if I were asked to uh, pick one verse out of Hebrews that underlines our study for these past seven months, I would choose chapter 2, verse 1, which says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. That's the point. You don't just come and listen to sermons. You take notes, you underline. You go away and you check it out and you pray and then you do it. Because if it says we can do it, we can do it because it's the Word of God. And then verse 23, 
I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Timothy was in prison. We know that from Paul's writing. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Now, by the way, our brother, Yusuf, has not been released. So don't forget to keep praying for him and his family. You all know that I get up in the morning and I immediately check my Yusuf feed on my Google page just to see what's going on. And it's really remarkable what's going on. Yeah, last week they reported there were over a million tweets around the world just for Yusef. That's very significant in this day of social media. Uh, in Brazil, they've made a big deal out of Yusef. The U.S. Uh, Congress voted, as most of you know, 100% uh, to condemn Iran for putting this uh, innocent man in jail. Uh, all over the place, in Washington, uh, a few days ago, there were prayers, public prayers, for Pastor Yusef. He has become the face of the persecuted church. I always remember when I pray for him and his wife and his children, I always remember that around the world today there are thousands of Yusefs whose names we'll never know until we get to heaven. And some don't make it and some are killed. And we must allow Yusef and the persecuted church around the world uh, to spur us on toward things that are truly important in life and to please God rather than just ourselves. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd read this book recently by James McDonald. He had a whole section in it. I'm, I'm, he really disturbs me, but uh, that's good. Uh, about whining and, and worrying and all this kind of thing. And the more I learn about uh, what's going on in the world and the more I learn about our great God and our great shepherd, the more ashamed I am at the, the way I act. And I think you can ask Valerie later, but I think she'll say yes. I hope so. Uh, really, in the last uh, months, especially with, uh, uh, I, uh, I think Yusef has had a bigger impact on me than being in Sudan. I mean, uh, I'm whining less, right? <laughs> she's smiling. Can you get the camera on that right now? <laughs> And then finally, verse 24, 25. Verse 24, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. We talked about leadership last week. And those from Italy send you their greetings. But the last five words is very important. It's our motivation. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Grace is God's unmerited favor and is to be the controlling motivation of our lives. It's the reason we do everything. It's the reason we live. It's the reason that we worship God and trust Him and follow our great shepherd because we've received salvation that we don't deserve. And if you're here uh, this morning and uh, you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please do not leave here without finding out exactly what that means. You must come to a point in your life where you accept what Jesus did by dying on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. Easter's coming and we'll be proving that, I think, beyond any doubt. Uh, he uh, loves you and all you have to do is receive him into your life for the forgiveness of your sins and you're changed. Totally, completely changed. And you can live a whole different life. So if you're here today when we stand up to worship in the last song in just a moment, there'll be people at the front of the church here who would love to introduce you to Jesus. And I invite you to come and, and pray with them. And the altar's open to pray during this last song if God has spoken to you and you need to really uh, sort of put a nail in the decision 
that you have made. So let's stand as the musicians come. And uh, those who are the prayer people, please come up to the front uh, right away so we can have you at the front here. And uh, let me pray. Father, I just uh, come to you today in thankfulness for your word. And uh, I'm just so thankful for the freedom we have to gather together inside this building to be able to teach your word, to listen to your word, and respond to your word. I thank you that none of us here, not one, is sitting with any kind of fear whatsoever that anybody's going to break in and, uh, and harm us in any way. That we know that you love us and that you've given us not only grace, but you've given us great safety in this uh, particular part of the world. Uh, Lord, thank you for it. Now, you've equipped us. Encourage us and motivate us to take this equipping and go out and tell many others about the Lord Jesus, not just by the way we live, but also by telling them the truth of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.